some of you might be aware of this. Uh, last week, after the uh, Houston Texans won their playoff game against the Cleveland Browns, uh, NBC's Katherine Tappan, she interviewed the rookie quarterback, uh, C.J. Stroud of the Texans. And when she interviewed him, uh, eventually, after that, the interview was posted to NBC's X account, formerly known as Twitter. Now, some people noticed that when this interview was posted on NBC's X account, that something was missing. Because if you saw the interview happen in real time, you know that C.J. Stroud began his post-game interview in a way that wasn't shown on the interview as it was posted on NBC's um, X account. He began, he said his response, in his response to her question, he said, first and foremost, I just want to give all glory and praise to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. NBC cut that out when they posted it to the, um, to the ex, formerly known as Twitter account. Positively, NBC has received some backlash for doing that, but I do think it's a simple reminder of what the apostles knew very well in their day. Namely, that the name of Jesus can be very offensive. Selective editing is one of the less hostile tactics of an unbelieving world, but it still connotes, nonetheless, hostility towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, there are those in the world who will do what they can to either mute the name of Jesus being said or silence those who would say his name. And again, selective editing, one of the less hostile tactics. Other tactics have included historically things like public beatings and shamings and even executions. And one of the things about Jesus is that he did not hide this reality from his disciples. He spoke to them very openly about it. As a matter of fact, for those that he would say would come to him, he didn't even hide that from them. It wasn't like Jesus preached to the multitudes and said, hey guys, I want you to come and get eternal life, but I'm not going to tell you about how hard it's going to be if you believe in me. No, he told his hearers that if you want to come after me, you have to be ready to take up your cross and follow me. There's a cost to following the Lord Jesus Christ. As it's often been said, there's a cross to bear before there's a crown to wear. And that's modeled in the life of Christ. And he told his disciples about these things many times. And now the apostles in our text, they are about to experience the first of many physical blows that Christ's people would experience throughout the centuries. They, the apostles, in the text that we're studying today, they were to be an example to the church that the cost of bearing Christ's name can indeed be great. But the honor of bearing that cost is far greater. And in that, biblical truth will confront our value system because we don't tend to think like that, at least not in our natural thinking. As we make our way into the text, let me just remind you of a little bit of the context. Peter and John were arrested again. Only this time they're arrested with the other apostles. So all 12 of the apostles have been arrested. And you'll remember that the council, basically the Supreme Court of Israel, had put them in prison overnight, planning to have a hearing in the morning. But God had different plans. They put them in prison overnight, so what did God do? God sent an angel, released them, and the angel gave them a command to go back out into the temple precincts, likely at daybreak, when worshipers would be coming into the temple, and they were to make known all the words of this life, this life in Christ. 
But a rearrest was inevitable. So the council, the Sanhedrin, they eventually have the apostles brought to them. This appointment was delayed, but it wouldn't be denied. They bring the apostles, the apostles are brought to them, and they begin by asking this question. Acts chapter 5, verse 28. Did we not strictly command you to not teach in this name? They refused, notice, to even name Jesus at that point. We told you not to speak in this name. That's reinforced by the next thing that they said to the apostles. They said, and look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Essentially, you've been a success. Everybody's hearing about this Christ. And intend to bring this man's blood on us. They didn't even want to say the name of Jesus. They didn't want his name proclaimed. And it's as though they didn't even want it found on their lips. And part of their concern was that they felt as though the apostles in preaching the resurrected Christ were bringing Jesus' blood on their hands. It's easy to see how that would be. Because if God resurrected Christ from the dead, if he was resurrected, that would be a proof of his righteousness and a proof of the unrighteous act of the council in condemning Christ. They didn't want Jesus' blood on their hands. And I want to begin today with saying what I said at the end of last week's message. It's so important to hear. The irony was this. If they would have simply acknowledged their guilt, and if they would have looked to the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood is so sufficient that it can actually even forgive the sin of wrongfully shedding his blood. That's how powerful the blood of Christ is. That any sin, regardless of what you have done, can be forgiven. Even the sin of shedding the blood of the innocent, eternally begotten Son of God who took on flesh. That's how powerful the grace of God is. So I just want to begin today by saying don't disqualify yourself. If your sin history is rather lengthy in your eyes and particularly grievous, please be reminded at the beginning of today's message that the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away all sin. If it could wash away the sin of wrongfully shedding his blood, could it not cleanse you? And the answer is it can. Don't make the mistake the Sanhedrin made. They won't acknowledge Jesus. You have to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. They won't acknowledge their sin. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner and you've sinned against the holy God. His bloodshed is the only means by which sins could be forgiven. So that's the context. That's what they say to the apostles. And now we get to the apostles' response. We begin in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, where we read, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. That's essentially what they told the council in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. God had commanded them to preach the gospel. And God even reinforced that command by sending an angel to release them from prison and telling them to go out and to preach all the words of this life. So they basically kept it simple. They're like, okay, the God of the universe has told us to preach Christ. You have told us not to preach Christ. It seems that you're at odds with God. Therefore, we have to obey God. The choice is clear. And I just want to remind you of what's clearly seen before us in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. You can't always follow the ruling authorities. God's people are to be the best of citizens, no doubt. But you cannot always follow the ruling authorities. Bill Crowder recalled how after World War II, during the Nuremberg trials, when the Nazis were charged with crimes against humanity, he said there was a kind of mantra, a mantra of their defense. 
And it went like this. I was just following orders. They obeyed men rather than God. And again, I tell you, the Christian is commanded. You look at 1 Peter 2, 2, the Christian is commanded to be the best of citizens, rendering obedience to the government and praying for rulers. But this obedience is not to be a blind obedience. When governmental commands force a decision between obeying Christ or obeying the regime, through biblical parenting or sinful parenting, or through the proper stewardship of one's body, or the sinful and harmful stewardship of one's body, they've gone beyond the sphere of their authority, and they've set themselves in opposition to God's design and precepts. And when that happens, when a decision is forced in those areas, the Christian says, Acts chapter 5, verse 29, I have to obey God rather than men. I'll pray for my leaders. I'll submit to every ordinance of men that doesn't go against those precepts and principles. Now, Christians shouldn't be surprised when rulers don't take a live-and-let-live approach. Biblical history may have very well been in the apostles' minds. You might remember Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, has this big golden image made of himself, and he didn't give the people the option of bowing down to the statue. He gave them the command to bow down to the statue. And if they didn't bow down to the statue, like three Hebrews didn't, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what did they get for it? They were to be thrown in the fiery furnace. But this wasn't an issue that was just limited to Babylon. Look what happened in the next regime. You have Darius. Darius issues this decree that there is to be no prayer offered to any man or any god for the space of 30 days. And what did Daniel do? He kept praying. And where did that get him? Thrown into the lion's den. And again, we're reminded that there is a priority that is greater than safety. Obedience to God. Now, if you know those stories, you know those historical accounts can cause us to marvel. You can marvel at how God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. You can marvel of how God delivered Daniel from the lion's den. But I think we should also marvel at the grace that kept Daniel's friends from bowing when everybody else bowed. The grace that kept them standing when everybody was kneeling. The grace that kept Daniel praying when doubtless so many others stopped. That also was God's grace at work. So Peter and the apostles, they say, Acts chapter 5, verse 29, they say, we ought to obey God rather than men, but they didn't stop there. They went on. They saw this as an opportunity. We're about preaching the gospel. We're here. You're putting us on trial. And there's a sense in which they're about to put the Sanhedrin on trial. In verse 30, we read, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, by hanging on a tree. Notice the boldness. This is an answer to prayer. They prayed for boldness in Acts chapter 4. And when you're speaking to the council that you know can have you executed, whether it's just or unjust, after all, they were all about seeing that happen to Jesus, it takes quite a measure of boldness to look at them and say, the God of our fathers... This wasn't like some unknown God. This was the same God of the Old Testament. He raised up Jesus. Likely here, not necessarily speaking about his resurrection, but in that Acts 3.22 way that he brought forth, brought Jesus onto the scene. He raised up Jesus and you murdered him. The language is strong. The actual the word that's used there in the New Testament Greek text speaks of taking one with one's own hands by violence. 
They murdered him, as it were, with their own hands. How did they do that? They essentially did it through the proxy of the Roman authorities. That's how they did it, through Pontius Pilate. They saw the crowd, and they incited the crowd to say, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus was hung on a tree. That expression, hanging on a tree, is a synonym for crucifixion. Where did the wood come from for the cross? It came from a tree. And Jesus was hanging upon it as he was nailed upon the cross. Why did Peter use this expression? Just a quick theological note here. I think Peter is using this expression because he's calling to mind Deuteronomy 21-23. And the Jews of that day knew that if somebody was hanging upon the cross, it was a sign that they were bearing the curse of God's judgment. And as Paul would later make clear in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the law. How did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. In other words, if you are going to be blessed by God, I'm talking eternally blessed, forgiven, enjoying God's presence forever. The only way you can enjoy God's presence forever, live under the blessing of God in the most ultimate sense, being in communion with Him, united to Him forever. The only way you could do that is if someone stood in your place and bore the curse that you deserve. Not some voodoo kind of curse, but the curse of divine judgment. Jesus hanging upon a tree bears the wrath of divine judgment so that all who believe in Him would be blessed. He redeemed his people from the curse of the law, meaning the right, holy, and righteous judgment that the law of God demands upon sinners, Christ Jesus suffers that so that all who believe in him would not be cursed with divine wrath, but would be blessed forever with a relationship and union with the living God. Amen. Amazing. Peter goes on and he says, Jesus didn't stay dead, essentially. Verse 31 him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. So he says, him, the same Jesus that you murdered. You murdered in a disgraceful way. You had him brought to the Roman authorities and he was crucified publicly. You wanted him to go through the utmost amount of shame. But God has raised him to the highest place at his right hand. God exalted him. The right hand speaks of the position of honor and authority and might. And just so you know, this was prophesied centuries earlier. There's many places I can go to talk about the prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Isaiah 52, it was promised that the Messiah would suffer. His visage or his appearance was marred more than any man. Isaiah 52 verse 14 but it was also stated that he would be exalted and be very high. Isaiah 52, verse 13. In Christ, you have that both coming together. In the crucifixion, marred. In the resurrection and in the ascension, exalted, very high. How high? To the highest place, to the right hand of God. And he's called Prince. That word here that's used in the New Testament Greek, archegon, could be one that means originator. It could be one that means ruler or leader. I think it's well translated here as prince. It's basically akin to Lord. He's been raised to the highest place at the right hand of the Father. He is prince. He is Lord. But he is also to be recognized not only as that, but as a savior. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had a bunch of problems. And uh, one of them was that they were looking for a prince to come. They were looking for a ruler. 
But they weren't looking for a savior who would save them from their sins. Don't make that mistake. We need a savior. And look at what this prince, look at what the savior gives in the text. First we read he gives repentance. This is what he gives. It's what he gives out. If you're wondering what repentance is, Repentance is when a person has a change of mind with regards to Christ and subsequently a change of disposition. That's what initial repentance is. Imagine it this way, very simply as as one person had put it. Imagine walking down the street and you're going in a direction to one place and all of a sudden, we've all probably been there at some point or another, you realize you're going in the wrong direction. So what do you do? You turn and you go in the right direction. It's a fitting illustration of what repentance is. It's like all of a sudden you realize, I've been going in the wrong direction. I've been thinking that I'm going to get to God by my own works. I can't get to God by my own works. I'm a sinner. I deserve the righteous wrath of God. I've been thinking that Jesus is one option among many. I am wrong. I can't believe that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I've been living as though I'm Lord over my life when Jesus is Lord, and I need to be living like he's the Lord of my life. And all of a sudden, repentance happens. You have a change of mind that results in a change of behavior and results in a change of direction. That's what repentance is. The Westminster Shorter Catechism put it like this. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And I want you to see what the text says here too. Did you notice that in Acts chapter 5, Verse 31, we're told that it's this prince and savior who gives repentance. I want to tell you a little bit about the mystery of salvation. Some people have this picture that goes a little something like this, if you kind of connect it with Genesis on the flood account. A lot of people think, okay, what Christ did on the cross is that he basically made an ark of escape. He made an ark of escape so that anyone who wants to flee the wrath to come can enter the ark of his sacrifice and his death and can be safe from the wrath to come. And that's 100% right. But what's often missed is the mystery of salvation in this. That if somebody does come to the ark, it's because the good shepherd has gone out to bring that lost sheep into the ark. Interesting, you might remember that when Noah had made uh, that ark by the direction of God, who brought the animals to the ark? God brought them there. Noah didn't have to go out and get them. God brought them there. And in like manner, God has put the ark of salvation out there. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone's going to enter into the ark, there's a mystery that's at work behind the scenes. It's the Savior who's at the right hand of the Father that's giving the gift and the grace of repentance. It's like the good shepherd has come and has picked you up himself and is carrying you all the way to himself and all the way home. It's amazing. It takes what's happening in a moment like this and it adds another layer to it. That if all of a sudden in your heart you are feeling drawn to Christ, it is because the grace of God is at work in you. And if you come to Christ, that is true evidence that the good shepherd has come and he has grabbed hold of you. The king, the prince, the savior has given you this gift of repentance. 
You see that in Acts 5.31. I won't take you through all the texts, but you see it in Acts 11.18. He's granted grace to Gentiles. God grants the grace of repentance to Gentiles. And you could look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 to see that, again, God is the one who grants repentance so that a person comes to know the truth. And with that gift of repentance comes forgiveness. Forgiveness. Look at verse 32, and it concludes Peter's response. He says, and we are witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So a couple quick notes here. Peter is saying, look, we're witnesses. We are witnesses that actually bore witness of the things that we're talking about. Like we saw the resurrected Christ. We saw him ascend to the right hand of the Father. We saw his life and ministry. Some of them saw his crucifixion. They were witnesses who were bearing witness of what they saw. just want to remind you that Christianity is not some sort of esoteric philosophy. It is rooted in actual history. And the apostles, among many others, were eyewitnesses of the events that we see recorded in Scripture. Amazing. Apostles bore witness of it, but they said also that the Holy Spirit was bearing witness as well. And you say, how is the Holy Spirit bearing witness? Jesus promised that he would. John 15, verse 26, he shall testify of me. But how was the Holy Spirit bearing witness? I'll give you some answers to that question. The Holy Spirit bore witness at Jesus' baptism when he visibly descended upon the Lord Jesus Christ at his baptism. The miracles that Jesus did were by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, not only by his own power, not only by the Father, but by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. The miracles that the apostles did by the Holy Spirit testified to the truthfulness of the message and so on. The Holy Spirit granted the apostles boldness. The Holy Spirit was testifying in so many ways, this one is the Son of God. Look at that last phrase in verse 32. He's the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The obedience that's in view here is that initial obedience of believing the gospel. Um, you can see John 6.29, Acts 6.7, Romans 1.5 for text to support that. And where does this obedience come from? Uh, Peter told us from Christ, the Savior, who grants repentance and forgiveness of sins. And so the sealing and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit comes as a work of God's grace and is nonetheless coterminous with a person believing the gospel. Now, if you look at verse 33, you'll see the reaction of the ruling council. We're told, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill him. They were furious. That word there speaks of them being cut. They were cut to the quick or cut to the heart. Not in a good way, not in the sense that they were convicted, but in a way that they were filled with rage and envy and anger. And what did they do? They plotted to kill him. The verb for plotted is in the imperfect tense, and it speaks of this kind of ongoing deliberation. They're plotting. They're trying to figure out in real time, how can we kill these men? But then all of a sudden, I want you to see this. The God who delivered his apostles by an angel would now deliver his apostles through providence. He could use miracles, but he could also use enemies to deliver his people. Look at what happens in verses 34 through 39. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, 
Take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. A few things I want you to see here. First, I want you to look at how God delivered them. He uses an enemy of the gospel, a person who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, to be the means by which he's going to deliver his apostles from death. The same God who used an angel is now using a Pharisee. What Pharisee? Interestingly enough, it's the mentor to the apostle Paul. We find this out a little bit later in Acts 22. He was the mentor to the apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus. God can deliver his people through miraculous means or through quiet providence. You might recall in 1 Samuel 23, Saul is like so close to killing David. He's got David cornered on a mountain. He's encircling David on both sides. David's in big trouble. Uh, 1 Samuel 23, verse 26, Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. And then you might wonder, okay, is this the end of David's story? Does David's life end in 1 Samuel 23 instead of 1 Kings chapter 2? And then all of a sudden, David gets delivered. And who does he get delivered by? The Philistines. Saul's right there. He's so close to getting David. Then all of a sudden, Saul gets word from a messenger. The Philistines have attacked. They've invaded the land. So Saul blows the whistle, relents from pursuing David, and goes back against the Philistines. And David is delivered through the Philistines. What irony and a reminder that God is in charge. There's so much to say. For the purposes of time, I will give you just some brief thoughts here about Gamaliel's logic. If you look at what this man says, um, he basically says wrongly that everything that is successful is of God. It's a wrong, he made some good points. He said, look, there were some rebels in times past, Theodos and Judas of Galilee. They led rebellions, and look, we didn't have to do anything. It just came to nothing eventually. So he was right about those examples. But there's plenty of movements throughout history that have sprung up and have been, quote-unquote, successful to some degree or not, and have had some measure of longevity, and that doesn't mean that they are of God. You look at every other religious system that rejects Christ or adds works to grace, and they've been around for quite a long time, and their, quote-unquote, success is not a metric of their being of God. But by Gamaliel's own metric, Christianity would be proven to be of God because it would outlast the Pharisees. He was right about that. If the movement that they opposed was of God, they wouldn't be able to stop it. But I want to close. Um, for the purposes of time, there's so much to say. If we go through verses 40 through 42, some of my favorite verses in the scripture that I think show the immeasurable worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'll close for today by saying, I want you to see that Gamaliel was using the wrong metric. He was using the wrong metric. He should have been using the metric that was right before his eyes the whole time. Jesus' miracles, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, the empty tomb, the miracles of the apostles, 
the lame man that was made whole, the miraculous escape from prison. There was no need for Gamaliel's if statements. As Alexander McLaren has said, uncertainty is fashionable, but it is fatal. See, he thought just kind of taking a kind of agnostic view, like, ah, we don't know. This may be of God. This may not be of God. And he's posturing in his wisdom. And you know what? It works. It stops the council from murdering the apostles. Doesn't stop them from beating them, but it does stop them from murdering them. But Gamaliel was using the wrong metric. I just want to remind everybody in this room that when it comes to the living Christ, there's no such thing as a safe place of neutrality. Jesus himself said, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Luke chapter 11, verse 23. Whatever else Gamaliel was doing, it was basically at the end of the day unbelief. Him saying, I don't know, Jesus may be, this may be of God, this may not be of God. It looks like wisdom. It looks like he's just deliberating and looking at the facts and saying, I can't come to a conclusion yet. And I just want everybody in this building to know, whether up here or downstairs and so on, everybody needs to know there is not a safe place of neutrality when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Either Jesus is Lord and you are to serve him, or if you think he's not, then forsake him. But don't lie to yourself and think, you know what, I'm just undecided right now. I'm just not sure. That is not a safe place to be. It is veiled unbelief. Jesus Christ, as you are going to see as we go through the text, Jesus Christ is worth suffering for. The apostles suffered mightily for Jesus' name. They got beaten, and the way they got beaten, when we look at it historically, was likely that they got 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes, and many people died under such a beating. And in their eyes, they're like, this is amazing that we were actually counted worthy to suffer for his name because he is of infinite worth. They truly believe that he was the Lord and Savior. So do not fall into the trap of Gamaliel. I would urge you, don't leave here today being undecided about the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't leave here today saying, you know, I just don't know if he's Lord. Maybe he's Lord. I encourage you by the grace of God to see what Gamaliel was missing. There was an empty tomb. There was fulfilled prophecy. There were miracles. There were the miracles of the apostles. There was the, the apostles who escaped from prison. There was biblical texts that were being quoted to them. And he missed all of those metrics because he had one wrong metric in mind, and that was the success of a movement, which was the wrong metric at the end of the day. I tell you, there is only one way to flee the wrath to come. There's one. And God made it clear by putting his son on the cross. If there was another way, God wouldn't have put his son on the cross. But he put his son on the cross to bear the wrath of all who believe in him. So that everyone who believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. How valuable is Jesus? He's so valuable that the apostles are saying he's more valuable than our own lives. Remember what Satan said to, Job in, uh, to God in Job chapter 2? Satan's estimation of humanity was something like this, that everything a man has, he'll give in exchange for his life. In other words, saying the most important thing at the end of the day for a man is his own life. You touch his life, you touch his well-being, watch how fast he curses you. But look at the grace of God in this account. Their person does get touched. They get beaten. Later on, every one of them with likely the exception of John, is martyred for Jesus' name. Because that's how precious 
and important and of infinite worth Jesus is. So I exhort you today, if you have not, to pledge yourself to his kingdom, to pledge yourself to his lordship, trusting Jesus Christ as Savior, not just with an ascent of the mind, but by God's grace with your heart, confessing him as Lord, believing that he rose from the grave, and then giving your life to serve him. He is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. What what an honor to be under your word and and seeing the word unpacked for us in the text of Scripture and seeing how you had so worked such grace into men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, and as we see in the text, the apostles. Father, I pray for everyone in this room that you would protect them from the myth of neutrality, that you would bring, Father, those who have been in a place of uh, agnosticism with relation to Christ, undecided about Christ, that you would bring them to a place of belief and they would say, I get it. Christ bore the punishment that I deserve and I believe and I pledge myself to him. Oh, Father, may it be. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us, Lord, Uh, For anyone in this room who does know you, Lord, for those who do, that there would be a fresh measure of cleaving to the Savior and out of love for him, not trying to earn forgiveness, but as a result of having been forgiven, not trying to earn love, but as a result of being loved, that you would help such ones leave here today with fresh passion to serve the living Christ who loved them and gave himself for them. Well, Father, as we prepare to celebrate the baptisms that are before us, we again say thank you. We thank you, Lord. And we pray, Father, that even as Anna and Jeff bear witness of faith in Christ, that you would use their testimonies to bring individuals from uh, a place of Gamaliel-like neutrality to a place of certainty in who Christ is and what he has done. And that, Father, those in this room might be encouraged and celebrate alongside of them. May it be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.